Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, Ruler listeners, and welcome to a special edition of the Ruler podcast. I'm Rachel Jarry, Ruler writer. I'm here with India Payne, also a writer for Ruler, and Olga from Velata magazine. We've been out here covering the Tour de France Femme for the whole week, and it's been an exciting week. Lots of ups, a couple of downs, but overall, really great racing and a really amazing race to be covering on the ground. India, where are we right now? Well, we are in the car park of our hotel in Po. Yesterday, we were in the city for the time trial um, where the Tour de France film came to a close. And yeah, we have three very tired journalists ready to go home now. Yeah, it's been a great race. Yesterday, like you said, the time trial in Po. What happened in that time trial, Olga? In the time trial, so what happened is that Demi Wallering won the to the front and more or less it was what everyone was ex- expecting. I mean, what we didn't expect much is uh, the final podium where Lotte Kopecky got the th- second place and Cassia Nivadova the third one. And finally, Annemiek van Vleuten, she couldn't be in the podium. Yeah, I think that was the one person who we all expected to definitely be on the podium that wasn't in the end. So what went wrong for Annemiek van Vluten, do we think? Mm, good question. <laughs> there were a lot of speculations during the week if she was uh, in shape or not, that what was happening with her because her season wasn't like the previous season where, you know, he won a lot of races. And then, um, yeah, we didn't know exactly what was uh, her shape. What happened, I think maybe he wasn't fit enough or maybe the other girls really was simply they were best than than her. I mean, we have to remember that uh, she's she's 40, so she's at the end of his uh, career. And I think this can be uh, a thing to know uh, about her. But but the other thing is that maybe she took maybe a bad decision in the Tourmalet stage with an attack maybe too early in cold spin and maybe that uh, made her lose a lot of time that she couldn't recover. Yeah, it almost seemed like she had too much confidence in her ability that day. She thought she would be the Annemiek of old who would be able to ride away from the peloton with one of those attacks. But in the end, she couldn't do it. And it was 
people were able to follow her and there was some very interesting moments during that stage wasn't there where when Anamique did attack it was Demi Vollering and Cassia Nuriadoma who could follow her and then those three were away and then some strange dynamics happened in that breakaway India can you talk about like what happened between those three riders and why it was such a weird thing yeah well I think the thing was Vollering and Van Vluten were so busy looking at one another that on the descent where they should have been keeping their eye on Cassia because she's a super strong descender, they just let her go and instead were looking at one another and even Van Vluten pulled on her brakes, which everyone was really shocked at. Really, they made a mistake there by letting Cassia get so much distance and although she didn't win, I think that was this mistake for Van Vluten because if she had, they had all kept up, I don't think Cassia would have been able to have made that attack on the steep gradients like Vollering and Van Vluten would have been able to. So yeah, I think they shouldn't have been looking at one another so much and looking at all three instead. And what happened in that moment is that Vollering, she has other uh, riders from her own team behind. So when they stop talking about the are you going? No, I'm not going. If you don't go, I don't go. And they had they had that weird chat. So that was good for Bollering because that allowed the other girls like Lotte Kopecki and Mar uh, Marion Rosa to catch them. And Van Bloten, she was alone in that group. So she had no other cyclists from Movistar to, to help her. Exactly. And on the time trial the next day, she was also way below what people's what expectations of her were. I think a lot of people thought even from what we've seen from Annemiek, it was almost slightly possible. We thought, oh, she might do something crazy in this time trial. She might pull it all back and turn the race upside down. But it, there was none of that, was there? I think she finished down in 10th or something in the time trial in the end, which is way below the kind of usual performances of her. And I think it puts maybe a bit of a downer on her last ever Tour de France as she retires at the end of this season but at the same time I think it's important to remember what she has done for the peloton and and how much of an influence she's had on the racing and really kind of respect her career rather than thinking about the disappointment of this Tour de France. Yeah I think I totally agree yeah if we look at the past she has a, an amazing palmarès. she's been I don't know how many times world championship she won uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I will make a mistake because I will miss any, any race if I start uh, talking about all this. But she has a great palmarès, and we shouldn't forget that. And I think the, her own team wanted to focus on this and give uh, the value to this. And also what she did yesterday, this Tour de France, what I mean, in general terms, terms it was not so bad I mean because we always expect a lot from Anemi Van Bloten but she did it great and the good thing from of Van Bloten is that she always had race in, in the same way in the top of the Tourmalet she said I'm always racing I always race with with my heart and that I, of course that's good but at some point but she can make mistakes because of that and at, until the last minute she was racing in in the way she was has been always raced so I think it's a good point too. Exactly. And I think in the place of maybe Van Vluten not putting in the performances that she wanted to, uh, we saw SD Works putting in the incredible, incredible performances and like Lotta Kopecky 
managing to stay with the GC contenders so late into the Tourmalet stage, I don't think anyone expected that. And that has to have an impact on the, you know, the mindset of the GC rivals to see someone like Kapeki, who's supposed to be this sprinter classics rider still there on the Tourmalet when you're a pure climber and you're getting dropped or you're starting to struggle. I think that was also a strength for SD Works was that they could kind of play those mind games with Vollering's rivals in the end. And that was a culmination of an incredible, incredible week for the team. First and second on GC, green jersey winners, three stage wins. You can't really ask for much better than that. And perhaps made it even more impressive considering all the controversy that they face midway through the week when Demi Vollering drafted behind the team car after a puncture and was taken right up to the back of the peloton by the sports director, for which they received that 20-second time penalty and then responded to it very badly. And um, then subsequently, uh, Danny Stam, the sports director, was actually kicked off the race completely. India, what do you think about the way they reacted to that? Was it the right way to go about responding to a penalty like that? What's your take on it? I think they didn't handle it in the best way. They seemed very bitter after it. Demi was like quoted saying that she found it comical They didn't seem to take it well, which I'm sure no one would take it well, but they were the guilty party at the end of the day and they know the rules. They know they shouldn't be doing that, especially that way. They said that everyone does it, but the way that Danny Stam had to veer off the road because he was driving too fast to then overtake the other car with Vollering behind him, everyone actually sort of gasped because they thought, oh my God, Vollering is so close. They knew they had done wrong, so then they reacted that way. And then, yeah, they did seem to carry that round with them and they saw themselves as victims of the peloton after that. But, I mean, they showed us all that no matter if they had a time penalty, they still could lead with over two minutes, so... A 20 second time penalty she got was just completely irrelevant by the time we got to the Tourmalet and she turned... We were talking about minutes, not seconds at that point. Vollering was by far the strongest rider in the race at that point. And I think the race maybe signifies Vollering and SD Works really taking the mantle as the dominant riders and the dominant team in the peloton at the moment. Like we talked about Van Vluten, not the rider she is anymore. And maybe this Tour de France signifies a bit of a shift and a bit of a change really in who is the top rider in the women's peloton. Yeah, I think so. It's a very... Um, very graphics, no? What happened mm. in this Tour de France with these two riders? I mean, I think it was yesterday that I realized there's the gap between those two riders. The riders is uh, 14 years old, mm. so we might, that's a big gap. That's a whole generation <laughs> there. So yeah, and it, it also exemplifies maybe I don't know, maybe a way of competing, of racing, or maybe I think uh, women's cycling has is more technical now. They have improved a lot, a lot in the way they train, things like you know nutrition, vats, and things like that. Things that maybe they didn't exist when when volering mm. started. So yeah, it's a like a turning point or something like. Like that this this to the front yeah exactly we're definitely seeing the professionalization of the sport really really going up and i think cassia Nuadoma said that at the top of the tourmalet about riding at altitude and how important that's become and how now riders are living at altitude she would have only before gone and spent a couple of weeks there but that's things you need to do to be at the very top of women's sport 
And yeah, I agree. I think this Tour de France was a real shift and a real change in the riders we're seeing at the front of the races. And I think we also saw that reflected in the stage winners as well. Um, a lot of young riders coming through. I think Canyon Schramm especially was a team that really stood out as well as Phoenix de Kooning as well for wanting to attack and not being afraid to challenge that SD Works dominance. And I think Canyon Schramm and Phoenix de Kooning both earned themselves a lot of fans through their attacking style of racing. Yeah, definitely. I think it made it so exciting for everyone to watch and I think they really gained a lot of fans through it already I think they had a lot of fans through Cassia I mean she's always been that nearly there winner type of rider and sort of we've all been hoping that one day she'll win or the Canyon Shram team will win I think seeing Ricarda Bauenfeind really win and just celebrate that with her team was so nice to finally see and I think when Cassia was at the top of the Tourmalet she placed second but she wasn't disappointed that she had placed second like you couldn't wipe that smile off her face it was literally like lighting up a very misty Tourmalet (laughs) top But yeah, I definitely think that it made for such exciting racing and it wasn't just any, there was no boring stages, I don't think, because of that factor. Everyone was just going for it. And I think before the tour started, SD Works looked like they had such a strong team that it sort of looked like they could win all the stages. And I mean, what excitement does that bring to the race? Yeah, it's great for them to win and see such strong riders perform, but everyone loves the underdogs also at the end of the day. And I think it's also interesting what happened in this Tour de France with the breakaways, because we have many stages where the breakaway was able to arrive until the finish line. And then I talked to Sandra Alonso that she was uh, in the breakaway, I think, in the stage uh, that ends in um, Blagnac, I think. And I asked her, of course, she was disappointed because she had no enough energy to follow Emma Nordgat and uh, I don't remember now the other the other girl, uh, also from Canyon. And she said, oh, I was seeing that the breakaways had the chance and I and I try it. So I think what happened in this tour is that many cyclists, they, they say to themselves, Mm, if Phoenix is doing it, if those other girls are facing or, or you know, trying the, the breakaway, why don't we have to, why we have to try it too? So, and I think that, that was a good point, an interesting thing. So, because sometimes the not doing things is a mental, it's a mental mm-hmm. thing. And we, and maybe everyone thinks that as the works are the, the dominant team and you cannot do anything because they are there. So the proof is that if you try it, maybe, maybe you can beat them. Yeah, I think in the past, maybe we've seen a bit of a risk aversion mentality in the women's peloton. It's almost like people are kind of accepted the fact that SD works are dominant and so they'll just sit back and let it happen. But like you say, when we saw the riders starting to attack, it just kind of set off a series of amazing stages where breakaway winners did, yeah, they did reign supreme in the end. And that that made for really, really exciting racing. But I think... What was interesting as well was the discussion around the stage lengths and some like, for example, the longest stage of this race, which came midway through was 180 kilometers, which was the longest women's world tour race in history. And there was a discussion about whether the usual shorter stages we see the women's peloton have create more aggressive, exciting racing, or if the longer stages allow them more chance to develop a race situation and let the breakaway get a big gap. And then we kind of develop that real Tour de France structure where you have the GC battle behind and then you have the breakaway riders going for the stage out front. I spoke to a few of the riders about this. It was a real mixed bag of responses. Like Cassia Nuadoma, for example, said she was so bored at the start of the stage and she always 
thinks is more exciting when they race shorter distances. Whereas other riders like Audrey Cordon Rago, for example, said she loved racing that long distance and it was perfect for a rider like her who's a bit more of a diesel engine, who's a bit older. What did you think about that long stage and, and is it something you want to see more often, do you think, in the women's peloton? I think maybe from the spectator point of view, maybe it can be boring. But in terms of performance, I think long stages can make a difference, maybe not in that stage, but in the next stages. Because, I mean, cycling and especially through the front or on a stage uh, stage race, it's very important the way you manage your own effort, how you manage uh, your own nutrition, how to save energy in the key moments. And that kind of a strategy, you need to, to know how it works. And putting long dist- uh, um, stages so long, I think gives the chance also to, you know, other kind of a strategy and maybe can uh, make difference uh, in other stages, but because uh, the add of kilometers and the add of fatigue can make the difference. And and I think it's it's uh, it's good. I think it's good to add this kind of uh, stages, not because of the, the show, and uh, but because of what can happen in the next stages. I think it's important to not, you know, completely try and mimic men's cycling just because that's what some people view equality as. Maybe it's thinking about how the women's peloton can shape its own narrative and its own structure to be able to not make the same mistakes that men's racing does where sometimes we we see really long Tour de France stages and we're thinking, why are we watching this? You know, we, we don't have to have the same as the men to make the racing exciting. Women's cycling is actually completely different. And I think the long stages maybe definitely suited the older riders a bit more. And like you say, at the end of the race, we, those are the type of riders we saw came come to the fore, the ones who had the experience to manage that fatigue of eight days of racing. And we could kind of see, I think, a bit of a divide in this Tour de France with some of those bigger teams, with the older riders, and then some of the younger teams who maybe are on the smaller budgets like Life Plus Wahoo, which is a British team. And India, you spent a day in the team car with them and witnessed what it's like to spend a stage of the Tour de France, all of the fueling, everything that goes into being in the convoy. What was that experience like and what do you think about that team and how it is being a smaller team in the race like the Tour de France? Probably one, I think Tom Varney actually said to me that it was probably the lowest budget team in the race. Yeah, it was really good to sort of get that insight. I mean, when I first arrived at their team bus before getting into the car with the DS, the atmosphere was so good. They had wannabe by the Spice Girls blaring out. They were all really chatty. And I just think they were just excited to be there and get that experience and have the crowds. And they all just mentioned like what an experience it has been. And even though they weren't winning stages or anything like that, I mean, they did have Ella Wiley second in the young classification in the end, but they were just really happy to be there and be given the chance to be on the world's biggest race. But yeah, in the team car, it was really good to see what sort of that side of the race is like for the DSs. I was really surprised at how little communication they have. Like they only are told what's happening via the race radio because obviously TV streaming doesn't happen till later on in the stage. So I was on the longest stage and that started at half 12 and the streaming wasn't on till three. So nearer the end of the race. But yeah, like they were, their plan was to get in the break. And that sort of happened in the first few kilometers of the race. And all we heard was break time gap 30 seconds. And it was only up until two minutes that they then listed all the riders that were in the break. And sort of Tom was on the radio saying, girls, the break is 
two minutes away now um, it's a really nice break to be in are we in it like he didn't know whether they were in it or not like they've only got Velivia with the route and then the communication that the girls are giving them so yeah it was really interesting to see like you think that the DS is there saying right attack now do this do that but it's actually a lot on the riders and what I was also shocked about was how fast they actually go I don't think you can really see how fast the peloton are going on the telly when you watch it but being in the team car behind when they hit them descents we were shooting off to try and catch them up it was actually amazing it felt like i was on a bit of a roller coaster i think we both got our experiences of the craziness of the race convoy this week didn't we i mean i was also incredibly like overwhelmed by how quickly they were going because i spent a day on the race motorbike and that was pretty high adrenaline (laughs) stuff as well um and the convoy it's a crazy crazy place and i think you definitely don't see that on tv you don't get a sense of how chaotic it is and how much the sports directors are thinking as well like you know they've got to drive these cars they're talking to the radio they're thinking about fueling they're trying to follow the race on velo viewer the convoy is a crazy place probably the most hectic place in the tour de france i think something you only get a real view of when you're in it when you're in amongst it so yeah we both got good experiences this week it's definitely stuff we wouldn't have been able to get if we weren't here on the ground and I think this was a great race to cover kind of in person. I think all the fans came out. We really got a sense of how much it meant for the little villages that we visited for the Tour de France to come through them. And it didn't really matter that it was the Women's Tour de France. It was just the Tour de France. It was just Vive la Tour. It was Tour Fever everywhere. And I think for me, probably seeing all those fans on the road, seeing, you know, loads of young women and girls out watching the race and having those idols and showing people what's possible for women, it was quite inspiring. And I'd say for me, the fans were probably the highlight of of my experience here and seeing how many people came out to watch. Olga, can you pick a highlight of the week? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I didn't expect this question. Um, (laughs) Maybe... I mean, personally, mm-hmm. mm, the Tourmalet, uh, watching the cyclists uh, going uphill in the Tourmalet, because I was uh, standing in the last two kilometers and, you know, watching all the cyclists appearing through the, the mist and the fog. I mean, for me, it was like I almost cry of happiness. It was amazing, amazing. Very, very dramatic, wasn't it? Oh. Amazing. And India, what about you? I would have to say the t- Tourmalade too, but I'm going to pick a different one. <laughs> Yesterday in the time trial, I thought the fans were just incredible. Every rider that went past, they were all banging on the boards and like it was just support for every single rider. It wasn't just for the favourites. It was for the smaller ones that had been in the Gruppetto all week. Like they were just so excited to see the riders and the tour be there. I think that definitely was a highlight for me seeing all the fans yesterday. Exactly. And this Tour de France fam comes at a perfect time for Rula, especially with the launch of our women's issue coming up, which we're really excited about. And that's yeah available to subscribers now. And we spoke to a lot of riders actually who are in the issue, who've contributed to the issue. Lizzie Dignan is an example. Um, Lotte Capecchi as well has a question time in there. And she's a really interesting rider who's got, I think she's probably the biggest shock of the week for a lot of people. I mean, that 
ability to climb, to sprint, to do basically everything. I, I suppose you could almost compare her to like Wout Van Aert in the men's peloton. She was uh, incredible this week. I don't know what, Olga, what your take was on her performance and where does it, what does it mean for the rest of her career? Do you think she's going to become a GC rider? What's going to happen? Um, she was asked that question in a, in a press conference, a very pertinent uh, question. And uh, she said that she won't change the classics for now because she really loves the classics. She wants to go for that and she will, it will be, they will be there objective in in the next years and she said that she never thought at any moment that she could be a GC uh, cyclist for in this Tour de France or win or maybe win the Tour de France in the next year but the older she gets I think she will she will change because you know now she can be explosive but the older she gets I think she will she will change the the way she races because uh she has the skills. We saw that. She has the skills. So I think in the next year, maybe she will do like a kind of a transition. And she talks a lot about the world championships coming up in a couple of weeks and how important they are for her and how much she's been training for them. India, do you think Lotte Kopecky is the favourite for the Worlds? Do you think she's got the form to win in Glasgow? Yeah, 100%. I mean, she's looked on phenomenal form here. But I definitely think now that the riders going to the Worlds and also racing against her there will definitely have a much bigger mark on her and be keeping their eye on her throughout the race. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. But after the performance we've seen, I think it's going to be very difficult for any rider to beat her. And for us, it's just more exciting racing to watch. So can't wait for that. We've got to go. We've got a flight to catch, but we're going to hear from some of the riders now who took part in the Tour de France fam, some soigneurs, some mechanics, and give everyone a bit of a picture about what it was like to be here on the ground, starting off with a guest editor of our Women's Issue, Lizzie Dignan. Can you describe the week? How's it been for you? What are your kind of overall feelings at this point? Yeah, I mean, from Lidl Trek's perspective, it was a bit of a roller coaster, ended with disappointment, really, honestly, but like also collective kind of team spirit you know like we'll keep fighting we had some bad luck losing both of our Italian champions so that sucked but I think the fact that everyone turned up to breakfast with a smile on the face shows the character of the team and we did our best and for you personally how's your form been because obviously you've had yeah like a busy block of racing how are you feeling were you happy with how your legs were yeah, I think so. I mean, I really worked hard every day. And so it's hard to really know where your standing is when you look like a domestic. But overall, yeah, I'm pretty content with how I felt. I mean, you, I always want more. <laughs> I've been at the front end of these races before. So, of course, I missed that. But I think all things considered, yeah, I'm pretty happy. And obviously, like you said, you've been at the front of these races before. You've been a professional for over a decade <laughs> now. How has like, the racing changed? I mean, we're seeing Vollering Van Vluten at the top and you've been through a lot of kind of generations of rivalries in the women's peloton how do you see the dynamic as having changed over the years um i think obviously the level is getting higher but it's also like not to disrespect the champions of the previous years it's more like the depth is there so like the racing stays tighter for longer so that the the initial attacks there's 50 women now who can follow and years gone by that was the winning attack so it's like consistently harder and for longer each each race day but yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, Demi has raised the bar and it's up to the rest of us to close it now. And also, I think the Tour de France shows a big step forward in the kind of professionalism and the fans who are out watching women's cycling. Have you been impressed by that, by how far that's come and how many people are out on the roads this week? Yeah, I mean, I never experienced um, 
like a cold automale experience of all, you know, the atmosphere up there was incredible and um yeah, every day we've had good crowds and every start and finish as well. It's been it's been it's been really impressive, yeah. And looking ahead to kind of the rest of the season now, what are your main goals? What are you thinking about for the rest of the year? I'd like to do a good performance at the World Championships and then honestly just to like maintain form and then I, you know, I really can feel that I've maybe taken a few shortcuts to get to the level I'm at, like in terms of just missing a winter. So looking forward to getting a solid foundation over winter. Megan Earl, Swanya for EF Education, Tibco, SVB. How long have you been doing this job for? I started as a Swanya in 2009, essentially in mountain biking. And then I moved into road in 2010, locally in South Africa. And my first debut role uh, in Europe was 2014 at the Ponferrada World Championships. And when did you join this team? I joined EEF Education this year. Previously, my previous team was Ceratisit, where I was with them for almost five years. I mean, before that, I was with men's cycling as well. So I've done a lot of swaneering for men, for women, for mountain bike, for road, for all disciplines. You're an old hand. <laughs> um, so can you talk me through what a day would look like for you on the Tour de France? Like, what time do you wake up? What's the first thing you do to start off your day? We wake up and coffee. <laughs> coffee is the first thing uh, we do. And then we kind of really plan everything out, whatever we were not able to complete the night before, depending on what time we got back to the hotel. We will then tackle that first thing. So for example, today, woke up, we had breakfast. I made fresh bottles, got ice, made sure that they were cold. We cleaned the cars, we made sandwiches for staff, for media, for our guests. We redid the cooler boxes and we made sure that every single feed zone, every single car is equipped with enough bottles, ice cold water, ice cold drinks, anything that the girls need in the race, as well as an, a huge amount of ice socks. Yeah, because it's quite warm today, I guess. Does that make a quite a big difference to how much prep you have to do versus like a classic where I guess you wouldn't have sort of 20, 30 degree heat? No, it's not so much the temperatures today, but the humidity seems to affect the girls. And depending on the actual race course, they go through pockets in valleys or up climbs where there's no breeze to cool them down. So the temperature can be feel like it's higher than normal, but it's mainly the humidity. So the girls really appreciate an ice cold bottle of water that they can pour on themselves or a really good ice sock in the middle of the race when it's desperately needed. So how are you finding the right places to feed them en route? Is it set out by the organisation where the feed zones are or do you guys find like a good stretch of road where it might be easy for them to take a bottle? So I am based in the official feed from the Tour de France, mainly because I have to get back to the finish line to be there when the girls obviously come across. So it's easier for me to follow the race directions from the Tour de France. Alternatively, our directors look at the race routes and look at the best points the most important places where the girls are going to need a bottle. Also, they have to take into account how easy it is to get back onto the race course or the alternative route provided by the Tour de France so that we can all get to the finish safe and sound or jump ahead to the next feed zone so that we are able to do more than the amount of feeds that are necessary. And currently we're averaging four to six feeds a day, wow. including feeding from the car when the roads are big enough that the riders can actually come back and drop to the car and get more bottles or ice socks. So is there a knack to making sure they get the bottles when they come through in like a big hectic peloton? How do you do it? With, wow, it's, uh, it's exciting actually. <laughs> Most of the time the girls, they know what you are capable of. They trust that you can give them the bottle when you need to give them the bottle. 
Most of the time the girls will kind of spread themselves or slow down a little bit. There are times when it's so fast and so crazy that you just have to be robotic and give that bottle as fast as possible. Um, but I know that I can give a bottle at fast speed. The girls know that I can give a bottle at fast speed and we just trust each other and we keep eye contact, give that bottle. And as soon as the bottle is gone, I'm already looking at the next rider to see where she is. So it's sort of the responsibility of the rider to make sure that the team is ideally a bit spread out throughout the bunch to make it easier for you to get the bottle to each of them, right? We do ask them to please give us enough time to kind of give us a little bit of a gap so that we can, that five seconds that it takes you for your arm to come back, it would be great, but it also depends if it's a fast, flat route, that might not actually be possible. So, I mean, the way that I give a bottle is I've always got a spare bottle in my, my other hand that is there and if they are too fast and I'm busy giving a bottle, the girls know that they can take this one bottle, it's easy access. And Sarah actually did this two days ago because the girls were too close together, they were half kind of wheeling each other. And Sarah just, I looked at the bottle, she looked at that bottle and she took it and we were just so excited that this worked out for both of us. So yeah, I was able to give six girls in a row bottles, but this is the job, this comes with experience. The riders also know you, when you're in the feed zone, you stand still. The rider, will, she will find you. They have to come to you because there's so much chaos with fans, with other Swaniers in the feed zone that you got to hold your ground. And post-race, what kind of things are you getting ready for the girls when they cross the finish line? What do they often want as soon as they finish? Depending again on the weather, we also have ice socks at the finish line. We have still water, sparkling water, and we have Aquarius because our girls actually really like Aquarius. It's got quite a refreshing taste and it's not so fizzy, not so gassy, but most of our girls will opt for the water, really opt for the water. A little bit of sugar after the race is good and then they go straight to the bus and have their recovery and on the way to the hotel they will dish up their post-race food that is prepared by our bus driver Alan Tomic and he prepares great meals for them and that's it. As long as they get their sugar, their recovery and their post-race meal within that hour after the race, we're good to go. And then when you get back to the hotel, what do you have to do then? Do you have to wash all the bottles? Like, how does it work? Well, we've got amazing bottles by Cannondale. They are compostable. So we can use them once or twice. And we've given a lot of the fans the bottles because once the bottle is worn or it's not supposed to be used anymore, you can actually put it into your garden and it, um, it will basically break down and go into the soil and it's a compostable bottle. Um, Cannondale is very aware of the environment and want to be environmentally, environmentally friendly. So we don't wash the bottles. We basically give out to fans and we donate. Just because these bottles, it's better to use them once, maximum two times. So, And obviously also the job of the Swanier, I mean, it's all about fueling the riders and making sure they've got everything they need, like they say. But is there a part of it that's being a sort of friend to them and being somebody who they can chat to as well to help them if they have a bad day or something like that? always I think by definition by French definition the word soigneur means caretaker so by definition we are caretakers we are mothers we look after the girls they are essentially our children or our tribe so on the days where a rider has a bad day of course we are there to help them emotionally mentally physically during the massage it's their time how they want to utilize their time talk to us about the day um, if there's anything that they're struggling with, we are there to support them in every way possible. This is essentially the job of a Swanier. Anna Henderson, rider for Jumbo Visma. Anna, we're at the end of the Tour de France. How are you feeling? How do you reflect on the week you've just had? 
I feel very tired, relieved. Just nice to finish and nice to end this week on a positive note with a good effort in the time trial. Yeah, it's been a bit of a up and down week for me personally and then also for the team, I think we hope for more. But uh, yeah, we made steps as a team and yeah, I think we can take positives and be happy with what we've done this week. And obviously you rode this race last year as well. How can you can compare the two routes and the two, like with the time trial this year and the Tourmalet, how did it compare to last year's race? I think this year was actually, it was kind of, the same-ish kind of course in every day, like twisting all the time, up and down, like really heavy, kind of like Liège style races. Whereas last year was a lot of variation, which was kind of nice. But yeah, I really liked having the time trial this year because yeah, again, adds another dimension. And then yeah, you've always got to do the tourmalet once in a race, even though I wasn't really a part of the race. <laughs> yeah, can you talk me through what it was like going up the tourmalet? I mean, was it as iconic and amazing as like people imagine it is? I mean, if I'd have had a view, it'd be amazing. But I just rode through cloud for an hour. Um, yeah, no, it was it was nice. Of like the fans were there making the best of it, and like yeah, it was kind of rubbish weather, but the fans made it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And luckily, I could actually take it a quite a little bit easier, so I could enjoy the atmosphere and really soak it in. So yeah, happy to be here. And you talked about a couple of up and downs this week. What was your goal or your maybe your job for the team going into this week originally? Yeah, I think we were hoping for a stage win this week and just a little bit more from the races. But yeah, I mean, we were there and we were fighting every day and we worked as a team and you couldn't really ask for more than our best and that's what we gave. So yeah, sometimes things just don't go your way. and We'll come back next year fighting. And can you pick a highlight of the race? Uh, now? Finish it? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think a uh, highlight was probably here actually like the last finish here was really cool and uh tourmalet like last kilometer there was a bend and like there's just so many fans it was like narrowing like it does in the men's race i was like yeah my name's planning for gacha even though i'm like 30 <laughs> minutes down so yeah it was good and there's been a lot of highs and lows this week so yeah happy to be here and happy to finish Annemiek van vluten rider from movistar speaking from the top of the tourmalet i was hoping to have a better way better day i didn't have my best day out there i think also yeah but i was full confidence to go that's also why i went on the spin already we had a good deep plan if i would have had a really good day that was the best plan to make it hard from the spin already and in the end uh, yeah i didn't have a good day so i had to pay the price on the top can you tell us about the descent uh, from the Aspa, talking with Demi, what did you say to her, what did she say, why did you ride together? Yeah, she didn't want to ride, so like, yeah, if you don't ride, then I also don't ride. But yeah, she also had a point, she had two teammates behind her, so, so I was like, let me wait for it. For me, the, the goal to attack on Aspa was not to make, to drop everyone there, it was more to do a first effort. But maybe in the end it was not so smart, for, for my shape of the day it was not the best plan. But you never know that, and I always like to race with my heart, and, and you always need to focus on your strengths. And usually that is my capacity and my endurance, so that's why I went. Carmen Small, Sports Director for Team Jumbo Visma. So Carmen, can you tell me a little bit about your day as a Sports Director on the Tour de France? How does it start? What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Yeah, so I think it's super repetitive. Most days are exactly the same. So we have a really good crew here who likes to actually exercise a bit. So we're always um, running or riding a bike or going for a walk, something in the mornings. And then, of course, breakfast after. And then depending on like how close we need to leave, obviously, as well, the start of the race, it kind of bags out if we're changing hotels, etc. I do some prep before the meeting. So typically I always have our race meetings the day of the race before either we leave or 
when we arrive to the race. So I do some self prep there and really like check in with the riders, see how they're doing in the morning. You can read their faces a lot at breakfast, how tired they are or the overall feeling of the group I think is uh, really good to see. And then, yeah, we go to the race, um, we do the race. <laughs> a lot happens in the race. And then normally we do our debrief if we have a long transfer in the bus. And if not, then we do it also the next morning when we do our, our pre-race meeting. And then after the race, job is not over, it just begins again. Yeah. So depending on how many sports directors we're with, Sometimes we have uh, two of us, which is really nice. So one person's handling the logistics and one person's just doing the race coaching. So in that case, we kind of split off. Then we come back together and, and talk about both race tactics and then the day for tomorrow and go over the daily plan together and the, and the race plan together. And then by that time, it's dinner time. And they have a small meeting with the staff afterwards and then try to go to bed. So... Yeah, it's a busy day. We try to definitely find some downtime when we can because day after day it uh, adds up quick. Because I've seen in the team car, you're actually on your own um, for some of the stages or all of the stages. Yeah, I have been alone most of the stage, all of the stages so far. Lisa Lott will come in the car and drive for me this uh, today and tomorrow. And then we have the time trial. So. We have one of the performance coaches who's joining us. Um, so she'll she'll take the second car. So Lisa Locke can come with me in the first car to do the driving. Is it hard to kind of think about being on the radio, driving the car, being in the convoy all at the same time? I mean, it must be a bit of a strain on your mental capacity to do that for like four or five hours a day. Yeah, it's definitely... I'm, I'm lucky because I started and that's all I ever knew because we didn't have so much staff around. So I think this is my eighth year now, sports directing. So you get your own routine and you definitely get in the zone while doing it. But I'm definitely more fatigued when I'm doing it alone than when I have someone driving for me. I think it's more... I think it's actually safer to have two in the, the first car because then you can really focus on the one person's really just focusing on the riders and navigating the caravan and just focusing on that and the other person can really just focus on race coaching. So yes, 100% it's better to have two people in the first car. It's not always that easy, you know? I mean, it uh, also comes to how many staff you have, how much funding you have for the team. A lot plays a role in that, but yeah, in a perfect world, two in the first car would always be the best. And on the radio, what are you saying to the riders? Because obviously when you're watching it on the TV screen, it's slightly delayed. Do you tell them when to attack, when to make a move, or do you sort of, is your style more to leave that up to them and let them make the race decisions and the race tactics? Well, in the car we have TV, but you can't ever, it's never working basically so and then even like here in France it seems like the cell phone service is really bad so it's also really helpful to have a good mechanic in the car because they're telling you their, their help especially when you're alone their help telling you the race situation who's in the front who's attacking which teams are being more aggressive they're super helpful in the car of course when there's two directors in the first car you can see that for yourself because you're just focusing on that. And I always tell the girls, we, we're we not there. We're not racing the bike for you. We can't. We don't know how you feel. We don't know how your opponents feel. 
So you have to race your bike. And I think it's really important for them to take the initiative. We can give them the overall race plan, the race tactic, what we want to accomplish, what's the end goal. But we have no idea. Sometimes we don't even know where they're at on the course, if they're together, if they're not. So I think that it's better to give them that responsibility and that feeling that they can race for themselves, that they they need to make a decision. Not making a decision is the worst thing you can do. So I really try to um, teach them that because I think it's really important in their own careers to understand the race tactics themselves, to make the right decision themselves and not rely on the car because also radios break, so they don't hear you. And just the final question, I mean, in the debriefs afterwards, say something hasn't gone well for the team or they're a bit disappointed. What sort of things are you saying to get morale up for the next day? Because obviously in a stage race, it's always important to be ready again to go again the next day. I think in the car, you can motivate them a lot if you do know the race situation. Of course, we're doing that. Also, the important parts that are coming up, if they need to be all together or not, reminding them of those things, making sure they don't check out. And then in the post-race meeting, I really tell them they need to be critical to each other because that's how they're going to learn. So if every day is like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you know, you did your best. Yeah, that's not good enough, actually. So what can we do tomorrow better than what we did today? So our race meetings, I really try to push them to be super critical with one another and and not take it personally. That has to be, I think, set up from the very beginning of the year, like, we're going to be critical and we're not attacking. It's two different things. And so, yeah, we really, really try to push that as a whole staff. Like, also, what can the staff do better? So we try to really look at ourselves and our own performance to be better for the next day. So I think it's set up good for them that they're able to reflect. And then, yeah, half the battle is getting the morale out up. I mean, they're tired. So, you know, this laid into the stage race. It's not who is just the best. A lot of it is mental. So a lot of it, how much can you push the power? Do you want to just give up? Do you want to keep going? What is the motivation like? You know, it's the same with bad weather. A lot of times riders just give up before they even take the start. So it's like, how do you boost their morale? How do you give them the confidence? Yeah, I can do another day. I can do another day. So kind of a little bit of cheerleading, if you will. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rula, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, now also available on our brand new app. Our latest edition, out now, is Rula 121, with the theme, Close the Gap. The mission statement of Rula 121 is to get more women on bikes and more women in sport. Though some significant moves have been made towards equality in our sport and towards giving young people male and female role models to support, we haven't reached parity by a long way. Rulo 121 aims to close that gap. To this end, we convened a guest editorial panel of inspiring, talented, powerful women to come up with ideas for features and to highlight not only the challenges we face, but to emphasise solutions and positive steps. We were lucky to work with former world champion Lizzie Dignan, our very own columnist, TV presenter Orla Chenery, Stephanie Hilborn, who is the CEO of Women in Sport, activist and journalist Jules Walker, TikTok sensation Sydney Cassidy, and the founder of Isla Bikes, Isla Roundtree. 
121 includes features on subjects as diverse as parenthood in professional cycling, how to make sport a more accessible space, an interview with Eritrean cyclist Eru Tesrom Gebru, who sought political asylum in order to pursue her dream of being a professional cyclist, training and racing around the menstrual cycle, why bike design needs to be more inclusive, a profile of cyclist Eileen Sheridan, who broke records and barriers in the 1940s and 1950s, and much, much more. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture, and Ruler 121 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to ruler.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15, PODCAST15, to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Ella Wiley, rider for Life Plus Wahoo. Ella, congratulations. You've had an amazing Tour de France. You must be over the moon right now. Yeah, it's a pretty surreal and I don't think it's sunk in yet that I've finished my first of hopefully hopefully a few Tour de France's. It was such an amazing experience. I don't um, know that if you told me how it went coming in, I'd really believe you because it's been a tough day every day and I think I've maybe surprised a few people and yeah, it's cool. And can you talk about the Tourmalet stage yesterday? Because I think that was probably the stage you were most looking forward to. Like you're a climber, that's your type of stage. And you finished 11th, which is an amazing result. Can you describe what it was like riding up that mountain and what the fans were like and things like that? Yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, When I reconned it, it was nice and sunny. There were a few clouds in the sky, but then, oh my goodness, yesterday it was like riding through fog the whole way, so you couldn't see anything. My DS in the car had to tell me like which way the road was going because I just couldn't see anything. And, you know, you're just trying to look forward and keep pushing. And, oh, the crowds were amazing. It was so cool. Uh, There was a bit of a party corner. I think I lifted like 200 watts going around there. I started sprinting and then I was like, oh, there's still two Ks to go or one and a half, but yeah. Oh, I was fizzing. I I think it's something really special to be able to race up a climb so famous as the Tourmalet and even Aspar was really cool. So I'm just excited for more in the future. And can you talk a little bit about your journey to this point? Obviously, you're from New Zealand. There are some barriers to riders from that part of the world coming to Europe to race. Can you talk about how you've kind of got to this point to where you are now? Yeah, um, New Zealand has quite a good school cycling scene, especially in Auckland where I'm from. So yeah, like through school, I started off in doing team time trialing um, and road racing and then with my school, for my school team, Epsom Girls Grandma, yeah, the girls. (laughs) Yeah, I have amazing memories from those days. I made so many friends and I think because I enjoyed it so much, I decided to just keep going and I did some racing in Australia. (laughs) Uh, That was pretty special and I think last year I did some racing for the New Zealand track team and I think I really got excited to maybe even race in Europe and then I sent out a few emails and luckily Park Hotel Volkenberg, uh, they gave me my start in Europe and then yeah, I think I just kept ticking away at the races, did a couple that suited me a bit more and then the, yeah, this year has been really awesome with the Life Plus Wahoo team. I've had amazing opportunities, just so awesome. I've met the coolest bunch of girls and yeah, like I think my biggest advice for someone coming from New Zealand is just to keep riding and keep enjoying it and you know opportunities will pop up and grab them with both hands because you never know where it might lead you 
I don't know that if you told me a few years ago I'd be here, I'd believe you. So yeah, like just keep riding. And what were your ambitions coming into the Tour de France? Were you going for like the kind of results you've got or have you surprised yourself? Yeah, I think after Itzulia, I got a bit of confidence from that, the Young Riders jersey there. So that was pretty special. And yeah, my team was really supportive. So I was definitely going with the mind of best young rider and just seeing what I can do. But yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've really been able to test the legs quite as much as I have at this tour. So I think I uh, yeah, probably surprised myself a bit with, you know, digging deep every day. But it's been a cool tour and I've just been soaking up the atmosphere because I've never had anything like this. <laughs> and what does the rest of the season look like for you now? Uh, road Worlds next week, <laughs> the time trial and the road race. So, yeah, straight on to recovery for that. Looking forward to it. And then, yeah, a couple tours to finish off the end of the year. Tour of Scandinavia and a few other races. And then, yeah, looking forward to going home to New Zealand eventually for the New Zealand summer. Yeah, it's exciting. Grace Brown, rider for FDJ Suez. So, Grace, we're at the end of the Tour de France fam. You finished a really hard week of racing. How do you reflect on what's just been? Yeah, it's been super tough. Like, I think this year is harder than last year. I don't know, like, every day was just really brutal. And as much as I thought that I'd prepared, like, better and even mentally prepared better, it was still harder. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know um, how to come back and, like be successful here because the whole peloton is just at another level it's really hard can you put your finger on why that is like why the levels skyrocketed it seems in recent seasons uh, i think like extra money in a lot of the teams like each team is doing all the one percenters to be better now like majority of the peloton goes to altitude when it used to just be the top riders that did that like so every rider is doing everything they need to do to be in their absolute top form, especially for this race. So if you're not doing all of that, then you're behind. But you still had a really good time trial today. Are you satisfied with your ride or do you see some areas, you know, that you could have improved on? I'm happy with my time trial. I think I did what I was capable of. Like, uh, and I think even if I did the race that I did today, with fresher legs I would still be happy with the power that I did and everything but yeah I've got quite a bit of fatigue in the legs so I'm hoping that in a week's time for the world championships I'll be in uh, really nice form but today yeah I'm happy with my time trial compared to the rest of the tour I think like I was disappointed with my performance on a lot of stages but the time trial was still good. And can you just talk finally a little bit about the team's ambitions as a whole and how you guys feel about, you know, the GC and those sort of things? How, how are you guys all reflecting on the race? Yeah, I think before the race, we already realised that the GC, like particularly the podium, was going to be a real challenge. So our, our bigger target was to go for stage wins. But yeah, unfortunately, that didn't work out for us either. Yeah, we're just like a little bit off in um, a lot of aspects. So I think um, it's sort of a moment for the team that we just have to have, I don't know, it's a, yeah. It's been a bit similar for the whole year. Like we've been in good form, we've been there, but we just can't quite get that win. Like the, the last little bit that we need to be right at the top. So, yeah, I think we just need to go back to the drawing board and 
and work out how we do that. <laughs> Pim Whitbrack, mechanic for Team DSM. Pim, how would you start your day at the Tour de France as a mechanic on the race? We start uh, with breakfast, then we uh, pack the bikes, pump the tires, check the batteries, uh, put them on the roof, make sure that uh, everything is packed in the, in the crafter. The crafter goes to the next hotel. Uh, we go to the start. When we are arrived at the start, we put the rollers out for the girls for the warm-up. Then uh, we jump in the car doing the race. After the race, again, the bikes on the rollers for the cool down. Then drive to the, uh, to the, back to the hotel and then uh, start washing, preparing the bikes for the next day. Put everything uh, again back in the, in the crafter and in the trucks. And then uh, we still have staff meeting to do. And then it's time for, uh, for dinner. So even if it hasn't rained a lot in the day or the weather's not bad, you still have to clean all the bikes every day? We wash every day uh, the race bikes. Yeah, every day. Uh, also de uh, degreasing the chain, loop everything again and check every everything again for sure that the bikes are uh, in top condition for the race. And obviously a big part of your job is doing wheel changes during the race uh, when the riders have a puncture or something like that. Is that ever stressful, trying to get it done in time? Um, obviously you have to be as quick as possible. It can be stressful. If you know uh, which person uh, needs a new tire or a new bike, then it's, then it's fine. But uh, if there is a crash and you, you're not sure who's uh, involved in the crash, then it can be uh, really hectic, yeah. And is this the first time you've worked on the Tour de France? How long have you been doing this for? Uh, no, last year I was also in the Tour de France. That was my first year, so this year is my second year uh, and also for the Tour de France. And what would you say is the best thing about the job for you? The best thing is uh, be at the race. Being uh, outside is also really nice to see uh, more uh, from the world than uh, when, you have a, yeah, when you have a normal uh, job in, uh, as a mechanic. Um, yeah, that's really nice to do. And any bad things about it? It can be uh, long days, especially uh, when there was a crash or something. Yeah, then uh, it can be uh, yeah, really long, early mornings, late to bed. But uh, yeah, the, in the end, uh, it's uh, really nice to do. And obviously we have the time trial stage coming up. Does that mean more work for you, more bikes to prepare? Obviously every rider will need a time trial bike and then the bike to warm up on, everything like that. How much does that change your normal routine when it's a time trial? Yeah, the, for the time trial, uh, it is a bit more work. Also the uh, pre-check from the bikes in the morning and then yeah, for the warm-up, put everything on rollers uh, for everyone. So yeah, it's, it is a bit more work than a, than a normal stage, but in the end, uh, it's not that big. And do the riders ever have like any special requests that you have to accommodate, you know, before the start, maybe they ride around and feel that their tires are too low or something like that. Do you ever have to change things last minute based on, on what they say or is it all done well in advance? No, it's, uh, it's all done in the morning. Everyone uh, knows uh, with which pressure they, uh, they want to ride. And uh, only when it starts to rain, then we have to, uh, to change it for the rain pressure. Uh, but for the rest, everything is clear for the riders. So that's it from the Tour de France fam. Thank you everyone for listening. You can read all of our stories from being at the race by visiting ruler.cc or by downloading the Ruler app. If you subscribe to Ruler magazine now, you will be one of the first to receive our upcoming trailblazing women's issue, which features groundbreaking interviews, training advice, features that break the taboo and much more. Visit ruler.cc to subscribe now.
You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.